Well, it's good to see you here this morning. As uh, Caleb shared, I am not Pastor Greg. I am far better looking. <laughs> and you tell him I said that. Okay, okay, you do that. They're definitely taller. Do you, can you get the? Uh, Got to get the uh, video going right so you can see me. Not. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, it is a joy to be here with you this morning. I'm Kent Spann, and I'm Caleb's dad. And I've uh, been here before, so most of you already know who I am. And uh, so you, I don't have to introduce myself, but thank you for the opportunity this morning to bring the Word to you. And I hope you have a copy of God's Word so that you can join along with us. As I was thinking about my week, the only thing that I could come up with is the picture that I want to pop up here for you in just a moment. Have you ever had one of these kind of weeks that kind of goes like this? Can you pop that one up there for me there? Where'd it go? There we go. Have you ever had a week like that? Uh, yeah. How many of you had one this week? Anybody else? I'm the only one that had it. When I used to fish, I used to bait cast fish. And uh, you used to have to put your thumb on it, and you would throw it. And sometimes the reel would get ahead of your finger, and then all of a sudden it would turn into what they would call a bird's nest. And, I mean, it was just an absolute mess. It was like that there. And, you know, as I was looking at my week this week, I felt like that. I felt like it was just literal chaos. Have you ever had just chaos in your life? Maybe it's just been a day. Maybe it's one of those days at work, my wife will come home and just everything is just going haywire, everything's going crazy, and, and you, you can't seem to get a grasp on it, you can't unravel different things, and sometimes life is that way. In fact, I thought about that, and as I really think about what's been going on in the year 2020, that's the kind of year we've had, hasn't it? That really has been the kind of year that we've had, and it's one of those sometimes you just say, man, I just want to get through this year, and I want to get out of this year. It's been a time of chaos, and I don't have to remind you of all that. Obviously, all the COVID-19, and I know you're tired of hearing all about that, mask on, mask off, can't sing when you're at Thanksgiving gatherings, not supposed to gather with anybody. Are we up? Are we down? Are we shut down? Are we closed? Can we go to the restaurants? Can we not go to the restaurants? You know, where can we go? What are we supposed to do? The stock market's in upheaval, uh, stay-at-home orders, holiday guidelines, and all the different things that are going on. Impeachment on a national scene, election fraud, riots in our streets, people literally barricading and taking over blocks of downtown areas, government-sanctioned riots, wildfires, natural disasters, election chaos everywhere. But maybe the worst is the toilet paper shortage. Amen? I mean, that's chaos. One person said, I used to spin my toilet roll like the wheel of fortune. Now I turn it like I'm cracking a safe. Life is like that. Sometimes life is very, very chaotic around us. And, and when it's the kind of chaos that we as Christians kind of pick up and perceive, it can be even more troubling. I mean, how do you feel when your world is in chaos? Do you feel anxious? 
Do, do you feel confused? Do, do you feel a little bit like you're out of control and maybe you get afraid? Or, or maybe like I do sometimes, I just get outright angry. I get angry at what's going on. You feel uncertain. You feel frustrated or you feel kind of just foggy. That's what it feels like to, to live in a season, a time of chaos. And this morning, we're going to join with a guy in the Old Testament with quite the name. You don't see this name anymore. Quite the name is as he dealt with the chaos of the world around him. And his name is Habakkuk. He wrote the eighth book of the 12 minor prophets. So go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Habakkuk. And that's not probably one that you were just reading this morning. So if you don't know where it is, go to the book of Matthew and back up five books and you should land at the book of Habakkuk. This was a real guy, a real name. His name literally means to embrace or embracer or one who clings. Some of you probably had a kid you should have named Habakkuk, amen? I mean, they just clung to you. They always are hanging on to you. They're grabbing hold of you in every way. And, and as we're going to discover this morning, looking at him, it's a very fitting name, Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived and served during the 7th century B.C., he wrote it somewhere, the book between 609 and 559 AD, 598 BC, during the reign of one of the kings, King Jehoiakim. It was a season of chaos. If you would have been living in that world, you might have described it like that picture that I showed you earlier. Internationally, things were in a state of evil. Assyria had always been the dominant world force, and, and they were a force to be reckoned with. They were frightening, and they were scary. But there was now a new nation, a new world power that was rising on the scene under Nebuchadnezzar, and they were sweeping across under the leadership of his son, Nebuchadnezzar, it was the kingdom of Babylon, and they were destroying everything in their path, including Assyria. They finally conquered Nineveh, and so the Assyrian Empire is in crumbles, and now this new empire is, has been raised up named Babylon. And you know, whenever there's a new world power, if you've studied ancient history, they go on a, a terror path of destruction and conquest. And so Israel is, is facing this uncertain time, this time of international chaos, but it's also a time of national chaos. Judah had a lot of kings. Most of them were bad, but they had one guy, his name was Josiah, King Josiah. He was a great king, a wonderful king, a godly king, and under his leadership, great revival came to the nation of Judah. But Josiah went out to fight the Egyptians without the approval of the Lord, and during the battle he was killed. And as a result, his son Jehoahaz rose to power and became king in Judah. But three months after he came to power, Egypt invaded Judah and took him off the throne and replaced him with another person named Jehoiakim. And it's under Jehoiakim that Habakkuk is writing his book, and Jehoiakim was the exact opposite of Josiah. He was an unrighteous, 
evil, ungodly guy. And, and not only was he personally, but his policies, the way he carried and conducted himself, and how he led the nation was leading Israel down the path of degradation. It's a pattern, if you know Israel, that we've seen over and over again. But the description that I would say in that if Habakkuk was here today, and as you read his letter, you would understand it was a season of absolute chaos. And in the middle of all this chaos, Habakkuk begins to ask some questions. I call them tough questions for tough times. They were tough questions for tough times. They aren't the kind of simple little questions that you might ask in your Sunday school. I mean, he was dealing with some real hard core questions as he looked around at his world. Look at, he, at what he writes in chapter 1 and verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry to you violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice becomes perverted. Gosh, I'm glad we don't ever see that in America. Amen? I'm glad that we're nothing like that. That, that we would never say that about us. Of course we would. As Habakkuk is looking around, he saw nothing but iniquity, injustice, violence, and destruction, just like we're seeing today. And as he looked around at all of it going on, he, he began to ask questions, and he asked one of the most important questions in the world, and he asked this question, where in the world are you, God? Where in the world are you? In the midst of all this chaos, God, I don't see you doing a darn thing here. Things are in chaos. There's upheaval. There's iniquity. There's injustice. There's violence. There's all sorts of, of crimes being committed. Your people are defaming you. They are not living for you. They're uh, doing wrong things. They're treating people wrong. Lord, everything is chaos. Where in the world are you? Because I don't see you doing anything. And if we're all honest, we've been there. Now, we're supposed to be spiritual. We're supposed to be mature Christians. So was Habakkuk. But he's really asking the question, where are you, God? And God does something very unusual. And we often say, if God would just answer my questions, everything would be okay. Have you ever said that? Come on, folks. Wake up out there. Have you ever said that? Of course you have. If God would just answer my question and give me an answer, I could deal with all this. Well, this is one of those times God just pulled back the curtain and said, okay, Habakkuk, you want to know what I'm doing? Okay, here you go. Verse 5, look around the nations and see Habakkuk and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. 
For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their own God. Habakkuk, you want to know what I'm doing? Here's what I'm doing, Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they're going to sweep in and wipe out Israel. Yay, God. Things were, about, things were about to get a lot worse than Habakkuk ever imagined. Now, when Habakkuk said, God, where are you? He had in his mind what he thought God ought to do. Have you ever thought about how God ought to do what he's doing? We know better, don't we? We got it all figured out. And, and here is Habakkuk. He had in his mind, no doubt, because if God didn't answer him, he was going to have an answer for God. But God says, no, Habakkuk, let me pull back the curtain. I'll let you see what I'm about to do. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. Well, that causes Habakkuk to have another question. Look at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my, my, my holy one? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them, the Babylonians, as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, what do you idly, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. You bring them all up with a hook. You drag them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. He rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to a net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? If we were to use the colorful language of society, it would be, what in the hell are you doing? But we'll put it in more biblical terms. What in the world are you doing, God? You, you, you know, I, I came to you about Israel. I came to you about your people and that they're not living for you. You need to revive them. You need to renew them. You need to spend, send a spiritual movement so that people repent and turn to you. But instead, you're telling me you're going to raise up the wicked Babylonians, those pagans, those, those evil, evil, godless, demonic people. You're going to raise them up, and you're going to use them to come and judge us. They are worse than us. At least we acknowledge you. At least we believe in you. At least we, we call you Yahweh. They, they don't have any regard for you at all. They worship their idols. They, they bow before their gods of sex and immorality and drunkenness. They do all that, and you're going to use them to come and, and judge us? 
You see, if we really get honest, and, and you know, I'm 63 now. I know I don't look it, but I am. Well, you ain't a pretty thing to look at either up there, okay? <laughs> if we're really honest, God can be very confusing, can he? Can, can I get just gut level honest? Sometimes God is just really hard to understand. Sometimes God and what he does just kind of makes you just kind of go, what? Maybe you're aghast that I'm a preacher, a man called of God, and that I would say, but I'm not the first. Habakkuk is saying it. Warren Rearsby, the great preacher, Moody Bible Institute, said, many people have the idea that it's always an enjoyable experience getting to know God in a deeper way. But that's not what the saints of, the, of God in the Bible said. He went on to write, A plaque hanging in my study carries this quotation from A.W. Tozer, one of the great preachers. And it says this, To know God is at once the easiest and the most difficult thing in the world. God certainly has the ability to reveal himself to us where he can do anything, but it's a problem for God to find somebody who is ready to meet him. God doesn't reveal himself to superficial saints who are only looking for a new experience they can brag about or to curious Christians who want to sample deeper fellowship with God, but at not too great a price. Sometimes God just leaves us hanging, and we don't understand. In fact, look what Habakkuk does in verse 1. He says this, he said, I'll take my stand at my watch post, and I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will, ans what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's raised his complaint. God has totally confused him. He doesn't understand what God is doing, why God is doing it. He got the answer he wanted. God told him what he was doing. Now he knows it doesn't make any sense. And, and he says, I'm just going to sit down at my watch post. And he ponders this question, the third great question of this book. And that is, what in the world is God going to do about the wicked? And, and we don't really have time this morning to unpack chapter 2. But God answers with five woes for Babylon. In other words, he goes ahead and tells Habakkuk, Babylon is going to get their just due. But they are still going to come and invade Israel. See, see, we want God to say, oh, gosh, really? I didn't realize that. I'm sorry, we'll change everything here. I'm going to punish them, and you're going to be okay. God says, I'll take care of them eventually. But all the stuff that, that I've told you is going to happen to Israel, it's going to happen. And there is going to be utter chaos. 
we probably all prayed this prayer, if we're honest, if we're Christians. Lord, you need to do something about America. You've you got to do something about this. You, you, God, Lord, see where we're going, abortion and, and, and all this stuff that's happening. You've got to do something. In our mind, what we mean by that is, God, we want you to send a nice revival so that everything goes back to the way we used to have it. So that we can live in our nice comfy houses and go to our nice comfy churches and enjoy our nice comfy songs and all the nice little things that we've always enjoyed. But what if God says, okay, I'll answer your prayer and I'm going to make the whole thing collapse. You do realize I'm doing a study through the book of Revelation. It doesn't say anything about America. Now, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I don't want things to get hard. And if you're honest, you don't either. Nobody does. You'd be stupid if you did. But it's going to happen. And I don't know where all this chaos that I, I see right now, I have to believe it's only going to get worse. Which leads us to chapter 3. And the question that I really want to focus on for the rest of our time today. All this was just kind of setting the plate. And that is, what in the world do I do when my world crumbles around me? Because what Habakkuk had to ultimately come to grips with was his world was about to go, go haywire. Everything he had known was about to go down the proverbial tubes. It was really fixing to get bad. Really, really bad. And there wasn't a thing he could do about it. He couldn't hide all of his money in a 401k in a a secret bank in Switzerland somewhere that nobody, it it was coming. So what in the world do you do when your world crumbles around you? Four things I I picked up out of chapter three, and I just want to bring them to you this morning, hopefully an encouragement to you. I, I wish I could say to you this morning, everything's going to be great, everything's going to be fine, everything's going to work out. Maybe it will. But maybe you won't. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and from the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. 
I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your chariots, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in the secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and the surging of the mighty waters." What do we do when our world crumbles around us? We can learn from him. We reach up to the God who stabilizes us. Uh, really, this is a prayer of him reaching up to God and saying, God, I, I need to come to grips with my world around me. And, and you could really take verse Two is really that focal verse that really sets up the prayer. It, first of all, he says, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you. He begins by focusing on God, not on himself, not on his creature comforts, not on everything that he's losing, which is where I tend to go in my own flesh. My wife will tell you that today. And you, I want you to know how hard it is to preach when your wife is sitting here because she's saying, Yeah, you're right. I've seen you. She, she's seen the, the warts and all the other stuff. That's why I just get honest, because if I don't, she'll stand up and say, oh, that's not him. So I just will go ahead and say it. Because I get to focus on me. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of England, said, our problem can nearly all be traced to our persistence in looking at the immediate problems themselves instead of looking at them in light of God. He said, Lord, I have heard the report of you. I'm going to go back. I, I remember the things that you have done. And then second of all, we humble ourselves before God. And, and it says, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. You see, at first he was a little perturbed at what God was going to do with the Babylonians invading Israel. But by the time we come here, he's humbled himself before God and said, God, you know, I, I don't have a grasp on this thing. You are bigger than me. I heard about the atheist that was having an argument with God and said, God, you're not the only one that can create a man. Isn't that what science is telling us today? You're not the only one that can create a man. And God says, okay, you go ahead and create one, and I'll watch. And he went over to grab a handful of dirt, and God said, uh-uh-uh, you use your own dirt. You think about it. You know, we, we have to humble ourselves at some point and say, God, you, you, it's yours. You're better than this. Third of all, we seek God's kingdom. He says, in the midst of the years, verse 2, revive it, revive your work in the midst of the years. Make it known again. Now, I, I know Habakkuk did it because he's a person, 
But please notice that Habakkuk didn't say, Lord, give me my 401k back. Lord, give me my job back and everything will be good. He said, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if that means I have to go through a virtual hell, then so be it, God, because it's not about me. And then finally, as we think about reaching up, we ask him for mercy. Did you see that? In wrath, God, remember mercy. Aren't you glad God doesn't give us what we really deserve? Hello? He just comes to him and says, God, we deserve everything that's coming our way. And ladies and gentlemen, Whatever God sent against America right now, he would be just. Who of us can stand before God and say, we don't deserve this? And and, and unfortunately, when that happens, we, the righteous, are sometimes there. Right? But then second of all, we rest in God. Verse 16, I I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. He's having a breakdown. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, we rest in the God who sustains us. The word there translated wait patiently in some and quietly wait in others is the Hebrew word nuach, which comes from the root word rest. We just rest. You know, sometimes we just have to say, okay, God, I'm going to rest in you. You're going to have to get me through this. See, I get in a panic, and I start worrying, what if this happens, what if that happens? And I was on the line with my coach, and he said, you know, you need to learn to say, God, you know, this is where I am. You see where I am. I I can't fix all this. I need you to come through. Third of all, We rejoice in the God who surrounds us. Look at verse 17. This is one of the most beautiful verses. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, let me tell you what that means in Israeli terms. A total economic collapse. Because remember, they were not a manufacturing economy. They were an agrarian economy. Everything depended upon the crops. Everything depended upon the flocks. Everything depended upon producing uh, uh, the trees. All all of it, everything. And And if that fell apart, I mean, it was total economic collapse. It was the Great Depression magnified nine times. 
He says, Lord, even if there is absolute economic collapse, if everything just absolutely falls apart, look at verse 18. I wish he didn't write this. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You say, Pastor, why do you say you don't like that? Because by nature, I'm a negative person. And, 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 and I'm a black and white. Is anybody a black and white thinker? It's a curse. Because you just look at everything, it just ought to be this way. And if it ain't this way, how can you rejoice? I mean, how stupid can that be? But note what he didn't say. He didn't say we rejoice in what is happening. We rejoice in God's presence. I will rejoice in the Lord, in God. Not in what God did or does, not in how God acts, not in what God provides, not in how God moves on our behalf, but he just rejoices in God. Someone wrote, Habakkuk exhibited the kind of relationship with God which enjoyed the divine person. Now listen to this. Which enjoyed the divine person more than the things that he could do for the prophet. you understand what he just said? Do you really get that? See, we, here's the way we, we operate, because we do it in our marriages. I'll love you if. And if you don't produce, if you don't provide, if you don't act, if you don't do, I'm done with you. But I love you. See, real love is when we enjoy the person. See, see, Cindy and I have been married 37 years. Some of you have been married longer, and maybe you have the perfect marriage, but Cindy and I don't. Cindy is a very hard person to live with. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and in the early days of our marriage, I was like, well, I'll fix her. <laughs> you want to know how that went? But you know what? 37 years later, there's a lot of those things that are still there, and she could get up and tell you the same thing. But you know what? Those don't matter. I just enjoy her. And I want to be with her. That's what Habakkuk is saying. And we rejoice in his promise. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. See, see ultimately, you know, he knew God was going to save him. And sometimes God saves us now, but sometimes he doesn't. 
but ultimately he will save us in the end. I, I was talking with somebody this week, and we've got to wrap up here. Have you ever noticed the old Negro spirituals that came out of the terrible dark days when slavery was a part of our nation? Have you ever noticed the theme of those great Negro spirituals, what they were? It wasn't about one, you know, one day I'm going to own a plantation and have my own farm and all that. It was always about heaven. They didn't look and say, everything's going to be made right here on this earth. Everything's going to be straightened out for me here in this moment now. They understood the, 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 the things that they were dealing with. They realized it was real. And they said, God, we know you can save us now, but we believe that you will ultimately save us. And in that we can rejoice. And finally, the fourth thing, when our world crumbles around us, we can rely on God who strengthens us. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In other words, he strengthens us to overcome the obstacles and difficulties of life. We got any deer hunters here? Got good. We got, got one or two there. Any others? Have you ever been out, though, in a forest, or maybe you've watched it on Disney or some TV show, have you ever watched that deer bounding through the woods? It's amazing. I mean, he's going full steam ahead. He's jumping over logs. He's twisting around a tree. He's jumping over a bush. He's moving over. In other words, he has the strength to overcome all the obstacles that's coming his way. He's saying, Lord, give me the strength of the deer. But then look at this. This is powerful. And he says, and make me tread on my high places. You know the image I have? Is that deer is bounding through, overcoming all the obstacles, and he comes to that cavern, and it's the end of the road, and the dogs perhaps are hounding him. They're right behind him, everything, and it looks like it is all over. And then all of a sudden, this deer, unbeknownst to us, we can't see it, begins to bound and step up on these stairs until finally they come to the top of the cliff in victory. He says, Lord, strengthen me to reach the mountaintop of victory. What a picture of the believer. Someone said, sure-footed, untiring, bounding with energy, the Lord's people may expect to ascend the heights of victory despite their many severe setbacks. The heights of the earth, the places of conquest and domain shall be the ultimate possession of God's people. And with that, Habakkuk ends his book. Didn't start and end the way we thought it would. We thought it would all turn out nice and hunky-dory. Or if you know the movie Christmas in Vermont, honky-donky. It didn't turn out that way. The end of it, all this was coming. His world is going to crumble. But look at the the prophet 
in chapter 3. Warren Wiersbe, again, I read, Habakkuk teaches us to face our doubts and questions honestly, take them humbly to the Lord, wait for his word to teach us, and then worship him no matter how we feel or what we see. God doesn't always change the circumstances, but he can change us to meet the circumstances. That's what it means to live by faith. Oh, by the way, look over at chapter 2. One of the verses that we hang the Protestant Reformation on, Martin Luther, Paul, Behold, verse 4, his soul that is of the wicked is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his, what does it say? Faith. Habakkuk moved from tough questions to a triumphant faith. So God is still God in the chaos. What do we do? We reach up to him. We rest in him. We rejoice in him and we rely upon him. Will you bow your heads in prayer?